Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to read an extended portion of Ecclesiastes from 112 to 226 this morning. Um, but we're, I'm not going to try and address everything in 112 to 226. There's, uh, there's just too much here. So we're going to focus primarily on chapter 2, 1 to um, 11. And someday we'll come back to 12, uh, chapter 1, 12 through 18, and then the rest of chapter 2. I'm, I'm planning it. He says a lot about work in Ecclesiastes and uh, toil. And I'm planning on having a particular message that kind of encompasses all that he has to say about our work and our toil instead of um, just touching on it here and there. We'll talk about it in a more holistic way later on. But for this morning, we'll read all of this. It's uh, very interesting. If you're really listening to what Solomon has to say, uh, well, I'll just say again, I said to Terry this week, I just battle with Ecclesiastes. You know my problems with Ecclesiastes and how I view it. And I just battle with it. And every time I get done reading these sections, it's just like I need to go take a spiritual bath or something because I'm just so down. And and I, I'm reading it going, yeah, that's exactly how I feel a lot of the time. And and it just it just like sticks to me. And then I then I say. Okay, let's let's consider this in the bigger picture of Scripture and in light of the gospel, and then it, then 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 the room gets a little lighter again. But uh, again, I want to say that Solomon is is writing and saying things in a way to bring you to a point to say that way of life is not the way we should choose, and he's not a cynical old man who's just burned out. He is wanting to provoke you to feel the weight and the emptiness of how most people live on a day-to-day basis. And personally, he does a really good job at that, I think, because that's where he leaves you, is this just this sense of, this is awful. But he's not saying that's that's the end of things. So we've got to understand it in that way, and we'll talk about that as we go forward this morning. But let's begin in verse 12 of chapter 1, and we'll read all the way down to the end of the second chapter. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Wow, what a great, wonderful statement to start with this morning. (laughs) I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. 
for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, which is not exactly true, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. In other words, what every guy wants is, is what that means, that delight of the sons of man. I got good ones. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom and folly, as though there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his, head, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same events happened to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. And this also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. 
Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart and with with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I told you I feel this. And uh, it brings things of light back things of life back to my heart that are heavy. Before we go any further this morning in this passage, I want us to spend a little time talking about Solomon. I think I've come to the conclusion that we have kind of a, a, we're kind of misinformed about Solomon. Solomon is one of the good guys in the Bible. You know, you got your bad guys, you know, Saul, bad guy. Saul's a bad guy. David, pretty good guy. We just kind of gloss over that whole adultery murder thing that happened in there, and we'll kind of give him a pass on that. And otherwise, David's a really good guy. And, and you know, there's, there's Ahab and Ahaz. Those guys are bad guys. There's those bad kings, and there's the good kings. And Solomon's good guy, two thumbs up. He's a guy that, Boy, we think highly of. But I don't think we've really stopped to consider Solomon, who he was, and his life. And so I want to kind of paint a little bit of a picture about him, and not just to beat up on him, but I do want to draw out a few things um, about him that I don't think we're, we are always really aware of. There's two main places in the Bible that tell us the story of Solomon. The first is in 1 Kings 3, and the other starts in 2 Chronicles 1. We're not going to go there this morning. We don't have time to read all that, but I'd encourage you, uh, if you do have some time, to, to read his story in those two places. 2 Chronicles goes on for several chapters. Uh, 1 Kings 3 is a little bit shorter. But I think if we understand a few details of his life in person, I think it puts what we've just read in chapter 2 into a better perspective for us of how far he went in testing with ple- testing his heart with pleasure. You may remember the story from Sunday school classes of the night that God came to Solomon and said to him, ask anything of me and I'll give it to you. And Solomon does not ask for money. He does not ask for power. He asks for wisdom. 
And he asks for wisdom specifically because he wants to know how to govern the people well. I think that's an interesting little tidbit there. He doesn't say, I want wisdom so that I can know God and serve him well. He says, I want wisdom because I want to be a better king. I want to be a better better leader, which is, which is good. It's just not the best. And so God says to him, I'm, I'm going to give you what you asked for. And because you asked for wisdom, I'm also going to give you wealth and power. And we sit back. I've, I've heard messages before on, you know, you ask God for wisdom and then you can know how to handle wealth and power and God will give you that too. And so you should seek wisdom and let God give all the rest of that to you. You know, I don't think that's what God did with Solomon. Because Solomon is not the person we're supposed to be like. I think there possibly may have been in God's plan to expose that even an incredibly wise man with a heart that still has a sin nature is not going to be able to handle wealth and power. Because Solomon fails miserably with it. He's not a good guy when it's all said and done. Matter of fact, God ends up pretty angry with him in the end of his story. He wasn't one of the good guys. But God tells him, when he meets with him in that that moment, he says, don't, don't, don't go after false gods. Do not worship false gods. Don't turn your heart that way. And he's not supposed to marry anyone from outside of his own land. And you know who his first wife is? An Egyptian princess. His first wife is an Egyptian princess. Right after God has told him not to do that. That's what he does. And why? Political purpose. Political uh, bonds. You may have heard this before, but in that culture, in those days, the king of one country would marry the daughter of a king of another country with the plan of establishing peace between the two countries because if your daughter is under the power of that other king, it's going to make you view certain things in a certain way. You don't want your daughter being harmed by this guy because you go to war against him or something else or cheat him. So the marriages of the kings were largely about power control over another king. One of the things that you will learn about Solomon as you read his story is he married 700 women. I can't even wrap my head around that. I don't even know what to do with that. Solomon reigned for 40 years. And if you do the very simple math of division, that means Solomon had 17, on average, 17 weddings per year. You know, assuming that he did them, spaced it out well, which he probably didn't. But that's more than one a month of personal weddings. Do you you realize how much Solomon devalued and diminished marriage in that way. 
Well, David did the same. David had a lot of wives. He did. And what God has established in Genesis 1 as one man and one woman for life, and Paul says that he did that because it was a picture of the gospel with Christ and his church. Every time Solomon married another woman, he, he diminished what God had established in Genesis chapter 1. And on top of that, he had a few girlfriends too. 300 concubines. How did that happen? Well, Solomon's riding by in his chariot, driving through town, sees a cute girl, get her. That's how it happens. Get her. I want her. I hope that inside of you, this just really bothers you. And Terry was asking me, what did they do with them after they got tired of them? They were like little toys on the shelf. That's what they were. And those women who had been used by Solomon now lived a life of loneliness and unfulfilled dreams. Toys. That was Solomon. Some people have said that Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived and ever will live. The Bible doesn't say that because there is a man wiser that would come after Solomon, much later after Solomon. But, but we could say it this way. Uh, and, and one of the translations says, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you I will also give you riches, possession, and honor or power, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. In other words, among human kings, he would stand above the rest in these areas. But he wasn't the wisest king who ever existed. As the rest of Solomon's story unfolds in the Bible, you begin to see the vastness of God's promise unfold. His wisdom and knowledge is remarkable, demonstrated through decisions that he made and his oversight of the building of the temple. But in addition to that, 1 Kings tells us that Solomon spoke over 3,000 proverbs, over 3,000 proverbs that were recorded. When we read the book of Proverbs, we're, we're reading in a sense a fraction of all of the wisdom statements that uh, that Solomon ever spoke or wrote. I've had a couple of pithy sayings that were my own over the years. He had three, over 3,000. We're also told that he wrote over 1,000 songs. And, and songs in those days were not like, you know, pop songs or even... Um, classical music. When, when we read that's, that he wrote over 1,000 songs, I think what it's referring to are songs of worship to God. He had an incredibly creative mind. We know one of his songs. Out of those over 1,000, we know one called The Song of Solomon. The Song of Songs is really what the name of it is. 
Canticles of Canticles. One of his songs is Song of Solomon, and it is a song of worship. Solomon's physical kingdom encompassed all of modern-day Israel, along with the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and north in some of Syria. Went up into modern-day Syria. But politically, Solomon controlled a much larger area stretching into modern-day Iraq, about halfway into modern-day Iraq, possibly north into parts of Turkey, because we're told that he controlled everything um, as far as the Euphrates, which is into the middle of Iraq, touches up into Turkey and runs down into Saudi Arabia. He also had some, some control into the uh, northeast corner of Egypt. I think it's safe to say that Solomon controlled all of the Middle East, not occupying it all, but he had all of the rulers of the Middle East under his thumb. And they paid tribute to him. And he exploited their resources. Second Chronicles 9 tells us that annually, annually, Solomon collected from all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land 25 tons of gold annually. That's, that's you know, we talk in ounces today. If, and again, I did math because I, I can do some multiplication as long as it's not more than three numbers, I can do some multiplication. Uh, that, that if you take the current spot price of gold as of Thursday afternoon and multiply that times 25 tons, you come out to $1.3 billion in gold every year. But I, I would tell you that when David tasked Solomon and said, you're going to build the temple, David said to Solomon, here is gold and silver to build the temple. If you need more than what I'm giving you, just ask. And David gave Solomon over $50 billion worth of gold in today's prices. $50 billion. And, and Solomon's wealth compared to David just eclipsed him. Solomon was incredibly wealthy. We're told in that same passage that Solomon had a throne made for himself. It was made, it was carved out of ivory and overlaid with pure gold. Part of his throne in front of it were six steps of pure gold. So he walked up six steps to get to this throne and they are solid gold steps. There were armrests on either side, kind of like uh, side tables that it appears were made out of solid gold. We're told that all of his drinking vessels were solid gold. Everywhere he turned, there were solid gold. On, on either side of his throne on the first step, on the right and the left was a lion of pure gold. And then down beside his uh, thrown all the way down, whatever there, there were six lions on either side of gold. That was just his throne. He had so much gold, he didn't know what to do with it. 
he had 4,000 horse stalls in Jerusalem and over 12,000 horsemen in Jerusalem. And, and the Bible tells us that he was so wealthy and the lifestyle of Jerusalem so affluent that literally silver was considered as common as a stone in, the, in your path. It had no value because they were so wealthy, they had so much gold, silver was nothing. There's another bit of information that just blew my mind about Solomon that is in 1 Kings 4. The the writer of 1 Kings records what was necessary daily, the provisions that were necessary daily to take care of Solomon's household. Every day, this was the amount of food necessary to feed his household. Every day, it gives it in, in their measurements of that day, but putting in our measurements today, a 50-gallon drum of fine flour. Oh, no. No, not one 50-gallon drum of flour every day. 50. 50 50-gallon 50 drums of flour every day. Along with another 150-gallon drums of meal every day. But he was not a vegetarian. So every day, there were 10 fat oxen slaughtered. Every day, 20 pasture-fed cattle. I mean, these are, these are amounts that we can't even comprehend. I have a quarter of a beef, we, we buy a quarter of a beef a couple times a year and put it into a freezer. Every day, 20 pasture-fed cows and 10 oxen and 100 sheep every day, along with deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowls every day. That's how much food was required to feed his household. You want to talk about a grocery bill? Think about what that would have cost. But it was nothing to Solomon because he was so wealthy. He truly had everything. And then we come to Ecclesiastes 2. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to win the Powerball, the mega jackpot? Solomon tells you what it would be like. And that brings me to a question I'd like for us to think about for a moment. Understanding Solomon and what he had, the question I want you to think about is this. What would it take for you to be happy or content? What would it take for you to be happy or content? What is the possession or the recognition or the amount of money or the relationship or the career goal or the change of circumstance or the experience that would make you happy? In other words, if you filled in the blank to 
I would be happy if. I wouldn't want anything more than this. What comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when you think in the middle of a day, I wish, I wish, what follows that? And I don't want you to be pious about it. I don't want you to sit back and, oh, you know, we just read Ecclesiastes 2, so I can't really, you know, say that thing. I wish that everybody would come to know Jesus. That's really what I want. That, that's it. That's, I want my children to know Jesus. That's really, no, I want you to be honest of that thing that you hold in your heart that if I had that thing, I know I would be happy. And I want you to identify that because Solomon has something to say about that thing. In the verses that we read in chapter 2, Solomon lists 10 areas in which he searched for happiness or fulfillment in this life. And he lists them out for us. Laughter, alcohol, art, which he pursued through beautiful architecture, nature, power, money and possessions, that's one category, music, sex, affirmation, and work. Laughter, alcohol, art, nature, power, money and possessions, music, sex, affirmation, and work. And obviously, Solomon had the means and opportunity to fully explore the pleasures that each of these areas offered. Beyond our wildest imaginations, Solomon explored these passages. I kind of have to chuckle when he says that, come now, I will test, he says, to his, he says to his heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy your, yourself. But behold, this also is vanity, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. <laughs> I, I, every time I read that, it's just like, yeah, right, you did because we're going to find out you really didn't. 700 wives and 300 concubines is telling you that he did not pursue with wisdom. He allowed himself to enjoy the pleasures, all that he could have, because he could have it. He ever noticed how really rich men have a tendency to have a whole lot of what the world considers to be very beautiful women surrounding them in their orbit at their beck and call all the time. Elon Musk had a pair of twins this week with a woman that he's not married to. Oh, he has several kids and only one of them were from a wife and or maybe two were from a wife, and they're not married anymore. Six from her? Wow. Does he have 10 total? Yeah, he has 10 total. Thanks. 
from whenever he wants a woman, he can just pick her up. Because he has everything. But even Elon Musk pales in comparison to Solomon and what he had and could have. He pursued laughter, yet he found it accomplished nothing lasting. He drank the finest wines, seeking to cheer his body. He engaged in abundant creativity producing beauty through magnificent architecture. He planted gardens and orchards and forests and vineyards, and he developed clever irrigation systems. He acquired wealth and was able to buy whatever his heart desired. And in one of the passages back from where I was talking earlier, it talks about how peacocks were brought in every year to him. Whatever he wanted, he just got whether it was animals or music or homes. He had all the trappings that accompanied great wealth. And he did whatever, or he did what all humans do when they possess great wealth and power. When humans have absolute power and great wealth, they exploit other humans every single time. They exploit other humans. In verse 7, he mentions that he had male and female servants, grouping them in the same conversation with his herds and flocks. And his, to show what he had, his servants were having children that were his possessions. In verse 8, he groups humans in the list of things he got, a word implying the acquisition of possessions, along with singers and many concubines. Well, unless you judge him, you know, it's kind of funny how he throws this in here. And I I mentioned it earlier. Many concubines in verse 8, the delight of the sons of man. In other words, don't be too quick to judge me because you all want that. And what was the result of his research project? That's why we're going to look at this, you know, research project. Solomon was a good guy. What was the result of his research project? Though he took whatever his eyes desired and whatever pleasure his heart craved, he states in verse 10, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing. None of it made me feel any better. None of it comforted my heart. None of it made me happy in any lasting way. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. It was vanity and a striving after wind. He uses that phrase three times in this section we read this morning, striving after wind. It means chasing after the wind to try and catch it. 
Just that, that phrase has just been playing in my mind since I've been studying Ecclesiastes, trying to catch the wind. I mean, this list here is the dream life for so many people. And, and Solomon's answer is, I spent a lot of time and energy and it didn't do a thing for me. I was chasing wind. You know, when I, when I read chapter 2, I find Solomon's words to be very sad, which you, I, it makes me cry. My heart hurts for Solomon. And, and I, I find myself, and I, I, see, I look back on my life, and I see on a much lower scale, I've done a lot of the same things. And that makes me sad. But I also find it a bit scary. But you know, one of the things that saddens me as I read chapter 2 is that all of the things listed by Solomon are good things in and of themselves, with the exception of the exploitation of human beings. I want to be very clear on that. Slavery is wrong. I don't care how you want to dress it up, especially in Bible times, slavery is wrong. We can talk about, and I do, I recognize that a lot of times slaves, in particularly the New Testament times, were people who were more like employees than like slaves. But the reality is they existed as the, pos- the possession of the slave owners. They had no personal freedom and no personal liberty. And so we should not try to dress up the sin of Bible people. We should acknowledge that they were sinners. And this is the human heart. Jesus did not have slaves. but a lot of them did, and it is wrong. But everything else in this list, really, are all gifts that God has graciously given us. Every one of them. But Solomon's use of these gifts is sad, and it reveals what happens when humans with wicked hearts are given the freedom and power to fully pursue the abuse of God's good gifts. I want you to think about some of these. We're told in the Bible, in the Bible, that God gave us wine to cheer the heart. Which means it's a good gift from, from, from our Father. And you know where you find that? You find it in Psalm 104, which is a worship song to God. It's a song of worship to God, praising God for giving us wine to cheer the heart and oil and some other things. It's a good gift. Just like music is a good gift. Sex was a good was a good gift of pleasure given to Adam and Eve. I don't agree with the Catholic Church that it's only for procreation. The Bible doesn't say that. 
God gave a good gift that's a pleasurable gift to the first man and woman that he created. And it has gospel overtones that I'm not going to go into this morning. But there are gospel overtones in the act of sex. It's a good gift. Proverbs tells men to enjoy the wife of their youth. He's not saying get along with them. He's speaking of that in a sexual context. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your wife. Is what he's saying. And the Song of Solomon displays the intended enjoyment husbands and wives can find in each other's embrace. It's an explicit book that has been toned down when it's translated into the English. But Solomon's experience is sad because God intended these pleasures to be enjoyed while we live. God intended for us to enjoy these pleasures while we live, not for us to make these pleasures what we live for. Our highest pleasure, the reason why we exist, is to love God and enjoy Him forever. Our hearts are to desire him like the thirsty deer desires the cool waters. And we sing that song. As the deer panteth for the... And we harmonize and we make it sound beautiful and it's wonderful while our hearts are thirsting for everything else. If only. But that deer that is on the verge of collapse because of thirst and is searching for cool water, that's where we're to find our pleasure, is in God. That's to be the desire of our hearts. And we are to understand that all other pleasures are to turn our hearts in gratitude to Him. I'll, I'll tell you, I've, I've drank a lot of bad wine, okay? I've, I, I get frustrated sometimes because of how much the stupid stuff costs, and then you drink it, and it's just like, yuck, that's not good. It makes me shiver. I have this visceral reaction to certain wines that make me shiver. But every once in a while, you come across a really good one, and I, I still wonder if it's even worth the financial investment. I don't buy the really, really, really good ones. But it come across the decent one, and it's like, that's really, a, that's good. The flavors that are there. Now some of you are going to leave church here because I confess that I drink wine. I haven't tried to keep it a secret. But you know what I'm supposed to do? Is not crave more of that or another bottle of that or to give myself to a life of pursuing it. I'm supposed to Drink it and say, wow, thanks, God. Thank you, Father. I'm not supposed to pursue sex as an end-all, be-all. It is to be, thank you, God. And God wants me to enjoy these pleasures within a proper context and a proper time and to 
see those good pleasures as something good from Him. But you know what you do with them, and I know what I do with them, and we don't need to play games. On a Sunday morning, there are Sunday mornings where I feel like I laid an egg. There are Sunday mornings where I walk away and and go, that was pretty good. I had them right there. There's a whole lot of Sundays in between that, those two opposites. But there are days when the Holy Spirit actually gives me a sense of His presence while I preach and I feel the power of the Holy Spirit as I preach and I have that pleasure and that enjoyment of that moment and I walk away and go, that was pretty good. I, it takes me a while to come back to, wait a minute, you laid an egg last week. That's you. Whatever happened was the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Father. It felt good. So those pleasures that He gives to us are to turn our hearts in gratitude to Him. But sadly, we end up making those gifts our idols, don't we? We make them what we live for. But I also find Solomon's words scary because I want you to think about who he was. And when I do, when I think about Solomon being a man gifted by God with wisdom in such a way that He was known as the wisest of all men of his time. This guy, this guy didn't just know a lot. He was extremely intelligent as well, but he didn't just know a lot. He he could perceive in ways that other people just couldn't. He could find solutions and fix problems in ways that other people couldn't. He, He could understand the lay of the land, so to speak. but you consider how wise he was. And then you consider his choices. The slavery of human beings, the exploitation of women, power and wealth used for his own glorification instead of the good of others. The worship of false gods that turned his heart away from the very one who gifted him in the first place. Let me tell you this little tidbit about Solomon too. God told Solomon not to turn after false gods. On that night when he came and visited him, he said, don't turn after false gods. And what does Solomon do? He married 700 women, all of them, it appears, non-Jewish. And he ended up building all kinds of idols and temples and worshiping the false gods of his wives, which is exactly what God told him not to do. It was a weakness of his, and it was set up in the very beginning of the story of Solomon where it says that he did not remove the high places in Israel. 
He let them stand, all the high places of worship to false gods, and he added to them. It was a weakness of his. And you know what God did? He came back to him a second time. Later in Solomon's life, he comes back to him and says, Solomon, do not go after false gods or I will rip the kingdom from you. And what does Solomon do? He continues to go after false gods. He's so wise and he's so stupid. I don't know how else to say it. Except I climb down off of my little judgmental platform and then I I say, John, you've been given so much and you're so stupid sometimes. What you get wrapped up in and what you think is important. And it's scary to me. It's scary to me because I am so far below Solomon wisdom and knowledge. And it's scary to me because I know what my heart wants so many times. And so I read this and I study this and I think about these things and the question then comes to my mind, so how should we respond to Solomon's conclusions? How do we respond to his conclusion that it's all vanity and striving after wind and there's nothing to be gained under the sun? I believe that Solomon wants us as he writes this to us. He's not writing again as a guy who's just given up hope. He's writing to us to to respond back. In a very wise way, he's writing to us to respond back and push back against the argument that he's making. He's trying to push us towards a place of thinking. And I believe he wants us to recognize how easy it is for us to make the same choices, to make the pursuit of pleasure our ultimate goal in this life. But when it's all said and done, Solomon wants us to recognize that that's our tendency, and then he wants us to acknowledge that it's all vanity. It's all chasing after wind to pursue things the way he pursued things. Some people respond to Solomon by concluding that harsh self-denial is what God has intended, but that's just as wrong as the pursuit of things or experiences as the way of life. Asceticism is not what God has called us to. And there's a better way than those two polar opposites. And this way is the pursuit of Jesus. It's that simple. The answer to a life spent chasing after the wind in search of pleasure or a life spent chasing after the wind, denying self is a life, the the better way is a life of pursuing Jesus, who he is and what he offers. Setting your affection on things above, as we find written in the epistles, the letters to the churches. In this pursuit, you will find in the power of the Spirit, like the Apostle Paul, that in all situations you can be content. With God, all things are possible. 
In Christ I can do anything. His point is, you can be content. If you choose this better way, you actually can live a life of content and contentedness while you enjoy the good gifts of God. And you will learn when you make Jesus and his values and his way the pursuit of your life, you will learn like James that our good father doesn't withhold any good thing from his children. You say, but he hasn't given me then he knows that that's not good for you. You will find that the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The solution is to enjoy God's good gifts, but enjoy him most. closing this morning, I would ask you again to think about what should follow the statement I would be happy if. What should follow that statement? I would be happy if. I will be happy if I make Jesus and his ways what I want most in life. And then ask God to help you to be faithful to pursue that. And as we say in those marriage vows, and forsaking all others, and forsaking all other things, I want Jesus. hope that your answer to that question I would be happy if involves a pursuit of God's greatest gift to you the person of Jesus let's pray Father I thank you for the words of Solomon Thank you that in his wisdom, he speaks to us in a way that provokes us. And as the Holy Spirit guided his thoughts so that we hear your voice, we realize that giving our lives to a pursuit of things that you give to us is a way that is vain. It's futile. It is chasing after wind. And I thank you that he, that when we think about what he's written and when we respond thoughtfully to what Solomon says here, he wants us to ask the question of then what should I pursue? And the easy answer is Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that want you more than anything else. And that's a big ask.
It's a big ask because I realize how our hearts have been damaged by the fall. And I realize how our hearts have been conditioned by our culture. It's a deadly combination. But Father, I thank you that with you all things are possible and there is nothing that is too hard for you. So I pray that you would continue to grow us into the image of your Son, that you would continue to shape our affections and that you would help us to keep in step with the Spirit. Father, may we, may we grow in our intensity for you and our intensity of love for you. And may you help us to have desires and values that are for love and joy and peace and goodness, kindness, patience, gentleness. so that we will be people who know how to enjoy your good gifts while we serve you as our Father and Jesus as our King. Thank you for the gift of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. In your Son's name, amen.